Let's uh, open our Bible and take a look at Psalm 132. We're going to continue in a series we started last week on David's vow from Psalm 132. We're going to take a few weeks on Psalm 132, 133, 134. Those chapters go together. It's important to read them together. Really, you can read all the songs of ascent together uh, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, 135, I think. And uh, read them all together. There, it's, uh, it's really a, a, um, a sweet section of the Psalms. It's what the worshipers would sing on the pilgrim feast when they would come back to, to, to Jerusalem. They would, they would sing these psalms together. And some commentators believe it's the psalms that the, uh, the priests would sing as they were up there walking up the steps to the temple to, to carry out their priestly duties. Uh, either way, they're, they're just powerful songs that usher you into the presence of the Lord. And there's so much, uh, how do I say it, so much good prophetic instruction from those psalms and uh they lift the heart that's what they're they're geared to do to lift the heart to encourage and affirm of god's deliverance and his faithfulness so uh psalm 132 uh we believe solomon actually wrote this this psalm and uh the reason is because verse 8 through 10 appear in second chronicles chapter 6 Verse 8 through 10 appear uh, essentially verbatim in Second Chronicles 6, verse 41 and 42, which is a prayer of Solomon's. And so it's fairly likely, uh, I'd say very likely, that Solomon is the one that wrote this psalm. And uh, when you understand the context in which Solomon wrote the psalm, it really gives even that much more understanding to it. But let's go ahead and let's just read through the first 10 verses. And uh, I want to make a point or two about David. And then I want to walk through the narrative of what what transpired uh, in David's life to make him want to vow in this way. Because this is a vow. This is a big deal. All right, Psalm 132, verse 1. Again, I believe it's Solomon speaking. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions. Remember David in all his afflictions. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And here's the vow, verse 3. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. There's the vow. David says, I'm not going to rest. That's really what he's saying. He's not saying, I won't sleep ever. That wouldn't work. Some of our night watchers have tried that. It doesn't work. But. He's not saying, I'm not going to sleep ever. What he's saying is, I will be ceaseless in my pursuit. I will not rest until I find a place, a dwelling place for the Lord Almighty, for for the mighty one of Jacob, a dwelling place, a dwelling place. And uh, and so then, verse 6, I believe we have Solomon picking back up 
in this psalm saying, Behold, we heard, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We heard of the ark. We heard of the stories from Ephrathah, which would be where David's family hailed from. We found it in the fields of the woods, talking about when David went and retrieved the ark from Obed-Edom's. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Let us go into the tabernacle and worship at his footstool, which I think is an allusion to the tabernacle of David. But the context here is actually about, the fullness of the context is about the temple being dedicated for the first time. So what you had, let's just remind ourselves, David, when he becomes king, he gets the the ark. The very first thing he does is he gets the ark, brings it to Jerusalem, sets it up in the tabernacle of David, and starts worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week around around the, the ark. Well, he then gets convicted in his heart because God's in a tent. The ark of the covenant is in a tent where the glory of the Lord dwells, and David's in a palace. And he gets convicted. He says, I want to build the Lord a temple, something greater than the house that I live in. And Nathan the prophet says, hey, you can't do that. You're a man of war. You've got bloodshed on your hands. But your son will do it. And then he prophesies to David some powerful things. And he tells David, actually, from your line will be where the kings of Israel all come from. Kings of, kings of uh, Judah will all come from, from your line. And then he says, and then one will come from your line who won't just be a king uh, over the nation, he'll be my son. He'll be Messiah. And he will be a king over the nation, but he will, he'll be God in the flesh. That's a pretty intense prophecy. You know, <laughs> that's a little bigger and better than most of the ones we give in our prophecy rooms, just saying. The ones in the prophecy rooms are awesome, but we've never told anyone, and we'll never <laughs> tell anyone, that God in the flesh is coming out of their lineage. Think about that intense word. And so that's the sure mercies of David. You see that phrase, the sure mercies of David, that God has sworn to David that his, his, from his lineage would come a line of kings and Messiah would come out of David's line. So when you see, when you see the, the terms, remember your mercy toward David, that's what it's referring to. It's Nathan's prophecy that, that he gave uh, to David in that regard. And so... Uh, David sets up the the tabernacle of David. It's night and day worship and prayer before the ark. And then Solomon sets up the temple. Okay? And David gives uh, powerfully to that. But it's Solomon that actually carries out the building of the temple. And it's it's in that uh, reality where the Mosaic, Moses worship uh, system and the tabernacle of David, that those things were fused into one reality in the temple of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in the, the most holy place. We had this, the sacrifices that God commanded uh, to Moses to make. And we also had singers and musicians going around the clock 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So that's what the temple worship reality was. So when I say that the finality of this was about the temple, that's what I mean. It was about that 24 hours a day in the temple of God. We combined with the Moses... Uh, sacrificial system. The, the, the one, uh, it's like point 1A and point 1B. Point 1A would be the tabernacle of David. Point 1B would be the temple. That's what this, this psalm is about. So he says, verse 7, let us go into his tabernacle. 
Let us worship at his footstool. I believe that's an allusion to the tabernacle of David, the point 1A. But then in verse 8, this is where Solomon's prayer from 2 Chronicles 6 starts. Are you following me? This is where Solomon's prayer from 2 Chronicles 6 starts. Well, what's the context of 2 Chronicles 6? Solomon's dedication of the temple. And so Solomon says, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Remember, the vow was that David wouldn't rest until he found a resting place for God. And then Solomon's answer is, Arise to your resting place, O Lord. You and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy for your servant David's sake. Do not turn away the face of your anointed, or do not turn your face away from your anointed. would be another way that it's translated. And so what we have here is Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication for the temple. It's the finality of David's vow. That's what's going on here. David makes this vow early in life that I'm not going to rest until there's a dwelling place for God. I won't rest until his presence is manifest in a dwelling place for God. And what we have in Psalm 132 is we have the remembrance of the vow, a little bit of the storyline up unto the finalization of what that vow brought about. about. And what it brought about was that the ark of God was placed in the temple of God in the Holy of Holies. The vow was carried out is the idea. David's life ends up walking it out unto the the resting place for God being found in his generation, within one generation. And I just want to mention this. When you see somebody like David, I mean, there's a few few, um, biblical characters, a few uh, people in the Bible that are heavily emphasized. Moses, David, Abraham. You have these, I mean, many, many, many chapters dedicated to that person's life. The reason why the Lord would dedicate so much information in the scripture to a person like David. Well, there's, there's multiple reasons, but the key reason is this. Moses, David, Abraham, these ones. They are pictures of Messiah. David himself, his whole life, was a picture of Messiah. Moses, he told the the children of Israel, because God's going to raise up for you a prophet just like me. I'm a picture of the one that's to come. When you see, you know, chapter after chapter, I mean, book after book, there's so much in reference to David through the scripture. Take note, it's not simply about David. We do get so much gleaned from David's life, from all the, the leadership things he goes through, from all the challenges, the personal things he goes through interpersonally, socially, spiritually, all this stuff. But ultimately, the thing that God is, I mean, really highlighting is, this guy looks like my son. Now, that's intense. Can you imagine your whole life? The whole of your life is one that looks like Jesus. That's who David was. And that's why the scripture emphasizes David so much. There's other, there's other important, important things about it. But the Lord takes these different ones, Moses, David. He emphasizes them and their, their life because that, that one is a picture of Jesus. 
It's ultimately always going to, go, going to come back to being about Jesus. It's going to come, about, come back to being about uh, who is God. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk us through David. I want to walk us through a little bit of the story leading from the time he makes the vow to the outcome. Now, Because, again, that's what Psalm 32 is doing. Psalm 132 is it's, it's giving us the vow that he made as a young man and bringing us to the fulfillment of that vow, the, the dedication of the temple. But I want to I walk through it in a little bit greater detail. So turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Some of you instantly know that's when David was anointed by Samuel. You instantly know that's when he was anointed king. I'm just going to remind us of a few thoughts here. You'll remember that Saul had been rejected by God as king over Israel. And that Samuel was essentially broken hearted over this. And mourning over it. In 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord actually comes to Samuel and says, How long are you going to mourn over Saul? That's tough. That's a tough word. How long are you going to cry over him? He says, I want you to go to, the, to, to Bethlehem, to the house of this guy named Jesse. And I've chosen a king from among his sons. And uh, I want you to anoint him. I want you to anoint this, this young king. And Samuel answers back to the Lord. He goes, if Saul finds out that I'm anointing another king, Saul is going to kill me. That's pretty intense. I mean, and it's probably right. Because Saul had uh, really, Saul's, I think, key downfall was his whole issue was how does he look before the people? He feared the people more than he feared God. He feared the people. He wanted to impress people more than God. If Saul heard that someone else was being anointed king by Samuel, that was just going to be a real problem. So he goes, what if, what if Saul hears? He goes, he's not going to. Here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go to the city. I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to show up and tell him you're going to do a sacrifice. Gather the city elders around. And then go to this guy Jesse's house. And do the sacrifice there. And in the midst of that, I want you to anoint the son that I point out. And so uh, Samuel shows up in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem's just a little bitty town. It's not, it's, it's not notable at all. Uh, you know, from the tribe of Judah, not a notable tribe even at that time. And uh, he shows up, and Samuel is so scary, because uh, the scripture tells us that in all of Samuel's life, not one of his prophecies ever fell to the ground. Everything he said came to pass. Everything. I mean, you had Samuel at times proclaiming the word of the Lord, and the Lord releasing like thunder and lightning over the camp of the Philistines, freaking all them out, and then Israel goes into plunder. I mean, Samuel is a powerful dude. So Samuel shows up at Bethlehem. The town elders come out, and they say, is it good or bad? Like, what are you about to do? He says, I'm about to have, we're about to do a sacrifice. So guys, just chill out. We're going to Jesse's. Come on, town elders, come with me. So they go over to Jesse's, and, and, and in the midst of this sacrificial deal, and they're doing a meal as well. They, he says, now, get your sons. I want you to think this through. There's eight sons, but Jesse only grabs seven of them. I think it's appropriate that David's number eight. 
the new beginnings. Eight is the number of new beginnings. He's the new beginning for Israel. But he only gets seven of them. The prophet, the guy, shows up and says, get your sons. I mean, the only thing I can think is you think so little of the, the youngest guy. You just think so little of him, you just don't gather him to the, to the meeting. He gets the seven, starts with Eliab, the, the oldest, brings him before the prophet. And the Lord gives, he gives the guidelines on his choice. We get to see something about God through his choice of David. And it's a cliche because we, we kind of throw this phrase around, but it's so important. It's, it's the issue, if you, think, if you think it through. It's the issue. So we get it in uh, verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, Samuel sees Eliab. He goes, man, this guy is the guy. He's probably like, you know, big old dude, jock, good looking, getting ready. To, you know, he's just like, this is the king. He's the man. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I've refused him. And there's, here's the phrase, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. What's God saying to us right there is this. God is telling us there's someone else whose heart has caught my heart. There's someone else whose heart has caught my eye. And I know this one looks outwardly like the guy. But if you think it through, that's what Saul was like. He said he was at, uh, head above everyone else in his tribe. He was the biggest, the, the best looking, this, this, this you know, warrior looking king guy. But his heart was corrupt. The Lord says, no, there's another guy. This, I mean, I'm, now I'm paraphrasing it, but here's the point. There's another guy, and his, his heart has caught my eye. That's, that's it right there. That's the one that needs to matter to us. Having a heart that catches his eye. That's the one that's touching me right now about this vow. Because David's heart caught God's eye. And that makes all the difference. And so you know the story, all seven of the older brothers passed before the prophet. He goes, not one of them. And he says to Jesse, is this all your guys? He goes, well, there's one other little guy. He's out there with the sheep. Out there with the sheep equals he's a dork. That's what it equals. Because only the lowest of the low were the shepherds. It's not hard. You just sit out there and watch sheep. Like the next lowest is like watching the grass grow. I mean, it's just, it just takes almost no skill set. Because he's, he's a sheep watcher. He's a, he's a, I mean, he's just low on the totem pole. Goes, yeah, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm not, we're not going to sit down until you bring that guy. Bring him. 
goes, gets, he goes and gets David. Most commentators think David's about 15. Josephus, the Jewish historian, has him at 10. Thinks he's 10 years old. He could be. He could have been 10. I think, I think 15 is probably about right, though. He's about 15, perhaps. Brings him in. This young guy, ruddy, red hair, red complexion. Kind of like DJ Red Hot. And uh, that's him. And, and the, the prophet pours, he does it. He pours the whole thing over him, anoints him king of Israel in the place of Saul. I mean, are you kidding me? A 15-year-old. Well, here's the question. When did God decide that David's heart caught his eye? When did that happen? Because it was already in God's mind by 1 Samuel 16, 1. When did David's heart catch the eye of the Lord? We've got to f- go back a few chapters to find that. So flip on back. Three chapters, 1 Samuel 13. And I'll give you the context again. Saul is uh, trying to make war for the Lord, but there's a, a delay because he's waiting for Samuel to come and sacrifice. He waits a whole week. And the people are getting impatient. And the people begin to scatter from Saul. And he thinks, I'll never be able to to win this battle if the people are losing interest. I'll do the sacrifice. He goes, "Bring, bring me the animals. I'll do the sacrifice. And Saul, you know the story. Saul does the sacrifice. And as he's finalizing it, here comes the prophet. What are you doing, Saul? He says, well, I was waiting on you, but you were taking so long. I figured we needed to get a sacrifice done so we could go to war. And he goes, you are rejected from being king. God has rejected you. Because Saul is completely under the, uh, the guise of his office. He's, all he cares about is how he looks before the people. He goes, I was worried about the people, what they thought. They were scattering. He goes, yeah, yeah, you're rejected from being king. I mean, can you imagine how painful that would be? It's just, I mean, he's only a few years into his reign. You're rejected. And then he says this, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him... Note the him. He's actually got him in mind. He's commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here we are. We're probably three, maybe two to three years earlier in the storyline. And the Lord has already found him. That moves me. Because... You have this young guy who's being rejected by his family. You see later in the narrative around Goliath that his older brothers are just, they just treat him poorly. You know, you're just so full of yourself, David. We're just so sick of you. But he's, he's so poorly thought of by his own dad that when the prophet, the prophet comes to the house and says, get your kids, he doesn't even bring him in. This little guy who is obviously super gifted. 
I mean, he ends up being commander of the armies of Israel. He ends up bringing Israel to incredible prosperity, running the whole nation with great anointing and authority. But he, at a young age, is sort of, you know, banished to the sheepfold. He's sort of the misfit. He's the black sheep. He's like, get out of here, David. We're tired of you. And they just throw him. They just kick him to the curb. They just throw him to the sheep. And out there with the sheep, out there with the sheep, He's 12 or he's 10 or however old he is. He's out there and he's, you know, I just think about David out there with the sheep, okay? It's a little boring out here. My dad, he wants me to watch the sheep. I'm going to watch him. I wonder how I can, you know, make the most of my time while I'm watching the sheep. Maybe I'll just bring my harp. Now, the, the harps in that day weren't those seven foot long, you know, kind of like, wasn't that? It was essentially like a guitar. It was very much like our modern day guitar. He, so he straps it on his back, goes out, and he's out there and he starts to play his little harp, plays guitar while he's watching the sheep. He's like 10 years old. As the deer panteth for. He starts singing psalms. He starts singing songs, 10, 12 years old David, out there with the sheep, rejected by his family, but all this time on his hands, and he starts worshiping the Lord. He just starts worshiping him. And nobody knows he's out there. Not one eye sees him, because he's out there with those sheep, except the eye that matters. God sees him. And God sees this little guy out there cultivating the presence of the Lord on his life. And he's looking over at Saul. And I mean, I know the Lord knows everything in advance, but let's just imagine it's a little bit more chronological. He's looking at Saul, all full of himself and afraid of people, and looking at David, not caring what one person thinks, and buying up all his time with loving Jesus. Singing out there with those sheep. And he goes, now that little guy. That little guy, he's special. He loves me. He wants my presence. Look at him. Look at him. Come on, Saul. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to be obedient? Oh, you're going to take matters into your own hands and do things your own way. You don't care for my heart at all, do you? But David, all you care about is me. He goes, I found a man after my own heart. And he's talking about the 12-year-old David. A man after my own heart. Do you know what a man after my own heart is? You know what that phrase just boiled down into just one sentence, what that phrase really means, a man after my own heart? It really just means this. I found a man who wants my presence more than he wants anything else. <laughs> Except for he's just a little kid. <laughs> I found a little guy who wants my presence more than anything. Having a heart like David is simply that. You want God's presence more than you want anything. I wouldn't trade you 
for silver or gold. Wouldn't trade you for riches untold. You are, you are my everything. That's a heart like David's. That's it. And I'll just tell you, the way that this touches me is, when I, when I think about the 13-year-old David, I just, I, I'm 43, but I want to be that 13-year-old kid. I want to be the guy that just, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I'm just so enamored with his presence. So in love with God and so after his presence that nothing else matters. That's what caught God's eye. That's what caught his eye. So it's two, three years later when the prophet comes and pours the oil over David and says, you're going to be the king. But it's, man, when he was out there with those sheep, just worshiping God. That's when he got the label, man after my own heart. So somewhere in there, David, I believe, begins to think to himself the language of Psalm 27. One thing I desire. Dwell in your house. Somewhere in there, one thing I want is to gaze on your beauty. Somewhere that, as he's out there with those sheep, he starts to get the language of the psalms in the songs that he's singing. Undoubtedly, he's singing choruses for a long time before he's penning them and handing them to Asaph and telling Asaph to run them into the, you know, to sing them into that, in the tabernacle of David. When you see a, a, a psalm of David, it says, for the chief song leader or for Asaph, he's, what he's done is he's written the song down. And sometimes he'll say to the tune of the lilies or to this tune. And he'll say, here's what I want you to do. Take this song, Asaph, and get the guys in the house of prayer singing this song to this tune. Most of David's psalms were written in the context of 24-7 worship and prayer going on there. But I guarantee you, much of the language started in his life when he was out there at those sheep. It's just, I mean, his life is just so cool. So he gets anointed as king. And in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 16, it's that chapter that uh, he gets invited to the, the, the court of Saul. Saul's demonized. He needs an anointed psalmist. By this time, some guys had heard David do a few worship conferences or whatever, whatever they did. There's a guy over there in Bethlehem, man. He's got like an anointing. And when he sings, I'm telling you, demons flee. And bring that guy in here, and it will drive that tormenting spirit off of you, Saul. And sure enough, Saul gets David. David loves the presence of the Lord. He worships the Lord. The presence of the Lord comes, and the demons flee. David is responsible, really, for keeping Saul sane through Saul having the presence of the Lord lift from him and having a demon come and torment him. David, his his anointing is so strong, he keeps the king sane through that. And then you know the story, Saul just gets overtaken with rage and jealousy, tries to kill David. David has to run, and then when David runs, he runs. The very first thing he does is he runs to Samuel. And I just want to just read this narrative because it's just too cool. 
1 Samuel 19. Are you guys with me right now? So David runs to Samuel because, remember, he gets anointed. He's 15, 16. Now he's 20-ish, maybe a little more. He gets anointed by Samuel. Man, the anointing for worship really comes. Now he's killing uh, lions and bears. It's pretty good. Killing a lion. Think of that through for a minute. Killing a bear, like just going for it and just taking it out. You know, you imagine you're out there camping. The bear comes. You're like, I'm going to take him. I mean, that's David. He's not eating the sheep. I'm going to take him down. I'd be like, hey, take the sheep. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> you know, what's one sheep? We're gonna, just going to save ourselves now. Here you go, bear. But he, he takes the bear out. You see, he's anointed to be a protector, to be a guardian, to be a warrior. He's anointed. The anointing that Samuel put on him begins to cause all his natural giftings to just go up a whole nother level. The worship, the warrior, all that stuff in David, it just it starts, it starts multiplying. He's in Saul's court. Now he's kicked out of Saul's court. He runs to Samuel. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He tried to kill him twice. And he and, he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. And there's a, there is a company of prophets. Samuel had a discipleship ministry, a discipleship school, so to speak. That's what we would call it. And he was training prophets together there at Naoth. And he says, uh, uh, And it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. He's, they're going to kill him. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now that is an awesome anointing. Imagine government officials show up at your meeting. They're going to arrest, you know, a couple people, and the the power of the Holy Spirit comes on them, and instead of arresting people, they're like, Yay, and thus saith the Lord, the blessing of the Lord is coming upon you. I mean, what just happened here? I mean, we've had the police called on us because of our sound problems a bunch. They've never showed up here prophesying, not once. <laughs> Zero times have they showed up prophesying. I'm just looking at that, I'm like, that's awesome. So there's this anointing in the atmosphere. To this, the guys that are assassins, they're going to arrest him and kill him. They show up to get him. They see the prophets, and, and now they're prophesying. Well, it doesn't happen just once. It happens two more times. <laughs> I just love this story. Uh, yeah, verse, Spirit of God came upon the messenger of Saul, and they prophesied. Verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. I just, you just got to think it through. What's the conversation they're having with Saul when they get back to him? So did you kill him? Uh, not exactly. Well, what would you do? Well, you know, we got there. We were mad. We were getting ready to kill him. We started feeling really good. And like energized and stuff and just like feeling something on us. Like this sweet anointing. And man, I just got bold and I just started prophesying. You're doing what? You're supposed to be killing him. I know, but I just felt so good. I just had to just declare the, the awesomeness of our God. And I just have a hunch. <laughs> well, what did you actually prophesy? 
you don't really want to know exactly the content. Well, yeah, I do. What were you actually saying? I don't know. It just came on me and it was out of my mouth before I even thought about it. Well, what did you say? David's going to be king. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what else to say. It just came on me. You're fired. Give me another. Give me some new assassins. It happens three times in a row. This is awesome. This is the best revival thing going on. I mean, it is blowing up to where murderers are showing up and turning into prophets. And my guess is they're prophesying God's plan that he's got laid out for Israel and for David. I'm just guessing. I mean, maybe not, but it seems likely, plausible. So... They sent messengers again the third time. They prophesied. Then he also went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is at Setu. And so he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they're at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and that's where the school of prophets was. And then the Spirit of God was upon him also. This happens to Saul now. I'm going to kill him myself. You stinking assassins. You don't know how to do this. I'm going to do this. Shows up, hallelujah. I feel the Lord. I mean, he starts prophesying too. Spirit of God came up, was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He's prophesying all the way in. And then he takes his clothes off. I don't know why. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. I don't know if he's humbling himself or what. Lay down naked all the day and all that night. You imagine Saul coming back. They go, so did you kill him? You know, the other assassins are like, what happened, huh? Did you kill him? Well, no. What happened to you, Saul? I don't know. I got there. I started feeling good. And what'd you do? I started prophesying. What else did you do? I took off all my clothes. I mean, this is awkward. So here's the thing. Let me, let me quit goofing around. So there's two times in the Bible where David and Saul are together. This time and when David is anointed at Bethlehem. The only two times recorded in the scripture where David and Saul are together. The first time he says, okay, David, you're going to be king. Samuel pours oil over him. And wow, things get better for David until they get really bad. When they get really bad, David runs to Samuel and goes, what did you do to me? Everything was good and now it's really bad. Saul's trying to kill me. Like, help. And then the Lord protects that gathering. That's what's going on there. The Lord is protecting Samuel and David's discussion. He's released an anointing that will stop even assassins. And so the content of their meeting is critical. He's protecting what's being discussed and planned. And, and so we, do we have any insight? That's the question you have to ask then. Do we have any insight into what they talked about? There's a, a, a few verses that, that maybe give implication, but there's at least one that tells us that they were talking about planning the tabernacle of David and ultimately the temple in its First Chronicles 9. And so we have that verse, First Chronicles 9. There it is. First Chronicles 9, it's a bit of an obscure kind of passage. It's going through a lot of names. And then right in the middle of it, you have this. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. That's been a sweet prophetic number for us. And for myself for, you know, a long time now. Gosh, like 20 years now nearly. They were recorded by the genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer had appointed them to their trusted office. 
Well, guess what? I mean, Samuel's dead before the tabernacle of David ever even comes around. Definitely dead before the temple is, uh, uh, you know, dedicated. But it's David and Samuel together that figures out who the gatekeepers are. And then it goes down in 11 verses later. It talks about the, the office of the singers that were singing night and day. And so clearly David and Samuel had a discussion about figuring out the genealogy of who would serve ultimately in the tabernacle of David and in the temple in the office of gatekeepers and likely in the priesthood and and in the songs. Isn't that interesting? So David and Samuel had this conversation sometime before the temple, before the tabernacle of David was planted. We've only got two times in scripture where they were together. It didn't happen when he poured the oil over them in Bethlehem. Had to be when he was uh, at Naoth in Ramah. Had to be. I think the reason why God was protecting that gathering at, at, at Naoth and Ramah was because God was unpacking to David through the prophet the plans for night and day worship in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. And I think it's there that David makes the vow. I think Sam, you know, David shows up, Samuel, what'd you do to me? I mean, I got really anointed, and I'm a good worshiper now, and I can kill bears and lions, but now Saul's trying to kill me. I mean, what are you doing? David, simmer down. David, you have no idea what this is about, do you? You think this is all about you preserving your life. Do you have any idea how much God likes you? You caught his eye out there playing with worship before, you know, when you were leading those sheep, uh, guarding those sheep. And God has got a plan. And here's the deal. You will be king, David. You're going to have to go through some, some testings and some pure, you know, purging and purifying through, through challenges. You're going to go through some sufferings, but you will be king, David. But I'll tell you what, the first thing you have to know about when you're king is it's not about you. It's about the thing that you desire most. He goes, I want his presence in my life. He goes, that's how the kingdom will be ruled. He goes, now the Lord has a plan. And I believe Samuel began to unpack it to David. It's night and day worship on earth as it is in heaven, David. That'll be the centerpiece of your kingdom. In fact, throughout the generations of Israel, the temple will be the central place where night and day worship is supposed to take place. It will be an on earth as it is in heaven. Just as the Lord reigns in the throne room in night and day worship, his people Israel shall have an on earth reality that mirrors the heavenly reality. And I believe they took time and unpacked it together until David finally said, that's it. I see what I'm supposed to do. I will not rest. I will not rest. I won't give sleep to my eyes, slumber to my eyelids. I won't rest until there's a resting place for God. This will be my heart's cry all the days of my life. Now here's the coolest thing. David goes through all these challenges, and as I said before, you know, as soon as he becomes king, there's the, the Jebusites who are actually living on Mount Zion. He drives them off, and then he goes and gets the ark, brings it back, sets it up in the tent he had prepared for it, turns to Asaph and the, and the, uh, the worship team and says, start now. And they actually start the very day that he brings the ark back. And you guys know the stories. And he comes back, he's dancing for the ark. His, his wife is embarrassed and says, wasn't the king, you know, undignified before the, the maidens today? And David's answer is, I'll be even more undignified. Because I don't care about what anybody thinks. I just care about his presence. 
He brings it back, tells Asaph, they, they, they feed everybody a bit, and then he tells Asaph, go ahead and start. And they start worship night and day from that moment forward. And it's that way the entirety of David's, uh, of David's reign. But here's the deal. David says, I want to build the temple of the Lord. Nathan says, no, you're a man of war, but your son will do it. He gives him the prophecy. I'm getting ready to land here. He says, your son will be the one that will build the temple of the Lord. And so let's go back over now to 2 Chronicles 6. I just want you to see this. Because this is what happens when somebody says, I want a heart like David, and they actually live their life that way. See, a heart like David's is not about making all the right choices. David made a bunch of bad choices. He made a bunch of them. Thank God that we get the details about David's rough choices. Because if we didn't, we would all disqualify ourselves. We go, man, he was so awesome, and all he did was awesome, and everything ended up awesome. But instead, he's awesome, and he makes a bunch of bad choices. I mean, the Bathsheba thing was just one of them. I mean, there's three or four, like, you're going, are you serious? I mean, the one I just can't understand is when he fakes acting crazy before the Philistine king. Till he's scratching the door and leaving claw marks in the door and he's frothing at the mouth. Our David. What are you doing, dude? I mean, like, don't kill me. He's, he's trying to preserve himself. He's, and the king's like, that's the guy? No, don't kill him. He's funky. Don't even touch him. Get away. I mean, they just leave him alone. And they don't, they don't kill him. Because he's acting so crazy. He's playing crazy. That's our David. I go, it's, it's in there. And I'm so grateful the Lord puts it in there. Because I go, dang, if David did like that, like I've done some stupid stuff, but man, not that bad, for real. Well, maybe. But I mean, seriously, he set the bar up there in terms of ridiculous stuff. So, Thank God that we get all of the story. Because it's not about perfect actions. It's about a perfect heart. A heart that wants his presence more than anything. And the other thing about David's perfect heart, when he screwed up, man, he ran back to God. He would run back to God. He didn't screw up and go, ah, I didn't really mess up. He would screw up and go, what am I doing? And he would completely reject those bad choices and run right back to God. But look at this. Here's now Solomon. Second Chronicles 6, 41. I'm landing. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. These are the words from Psalm 132 again. Well, again, this is in the context of Solomon dedicating the temple. The temple is now open. It's actually built. And this is what Solomon says. Arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. You see it? He goes, this is the vow my dad made. Arise to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. Remember what you promised my dad. Remember what you promised him, that there would be a line of kings that would come from him. That, that I, He's actually sort of praying for his own you know, he's like, you said I would build you the temple, and here it is. Remember that whole story, Lord. 
flip over one verse, how does the Lord answer it? It's so good. Second Chronicles 7 uh, verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Guys, what started as a desire for the presence of the Lord in the heart of a little 12-year-old culminates with heavenly fire coming down and devouring the sacrifice and glory being released on the earth in that generation. Within one generation, glory is filling the temple of the Lord. And what's the Lord saying? Solomon's saying, Lord, arise to your resting place. And the Lord's saying, here I am. He sends glory. He comes down in the fire so the priest couldn't stand to minister. My point in all of this is this. I just believe, I really believe just if any of us really get a heart like David's, the sky's the limit. The sky is absolutely the limit on what God can and will do. Because what started in the heart of a little 13-year-old ends up culminating with glory falling, fire falling, physically, tangibly, what if a company of people, what if, what if we, as a company of people, just said, we are going to long and love your presence more than anything? And what if we really walk it out? What if we really walk out that expression where we say, your presence is truly more important to me than anything else? You know, we sing those songs all the time. It's all in our songs. It really is. If you look at our songs, I mean, there are so many of our modern worship songs are all about the value of the presence of the Lord. They're pulling from the heart of David because it's all in the Psalms and the Scripture. But it's one thing to sing it and another thing for it to be reality in your heart. Beloved, I tell you, when I think these things through, I look at that young man. I just picture that young man out there with those sheep. I just go, God, I want to be that guy. Maybe not one person notices. Maybe not the eye of one human sees. But I want to catch your eye. I want to catch his eye because I love his presence more than anything else. That's what this vow that David made is all about. That's what it's all about. A heart like David's, I want your presence more than anything.